Welcome to episode three of Women of the Military podcast. In today's episode, I interview Air Force Captain Cynthia Klein. In the interview, we talk about Cynthia's journey to military life, some of the challenges she faced while in the military, especially in relation to physical fitness and deploying to Turkey shortly after her daughter turned one. In this interview, you will be inspired by Cynthia's dedication and what she did to overcome the challenges she faced to become a military officer. You are listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Are you about to face a deployment? Do you have questions about the deployment experience and don't know where to start? I know exactly how you feel, and that's why I created a free guide to help you prepare for your deployment. Check out the free guide at www.airmentomom.com slash free resources. Our guest today is Cynthia Klein. Welcome, Cynthia. I'm so excited to have you here and hear your story. Hi. Can you give us a brief introduction about yourself? I'm Cynthia. I am currently an active duty officer in the Air Force. I do personnel. So that's basically HR for anyone that doesn't really know military uh, AFSCs. And I've been in about five and a half years and I'm dual military. And I have an 18 month old and currently going through my first deployment. That sounds like an interesting story. I'm excited to hear a little bit more about it. Why did you decide to join the Air Force? Um, well, my father was in the Air Force when he was in his teens. He actually was raised in Puerto Rico, uh, moved to the States, didn't know any English and decided, well, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. So I'm going to join the Air Force. And uh, he got out after five years and met my mom and they had me and my brothers. And I was the only girl. So the princess of the house and my dad was my hero. And so I I don't even remember when I went to college. I'm blanking right now. But 2008, I went to Ohio State, and I remember sitting in newcomer's orientation, and I told my uh, advisor, I was like, you know, I saw you guys had Air Force ROTC. I would love to learn more about the Air Force. And so I signed up for Air Science 100 which was intro to air science, basically the history of the Air Force. And I went to new cadet orientation. And I remember thinking, what the heck did I get into? I had no idea that we would be required to wear uniform, that we would um, be required to go to PT. I legitimately thought it was an intro to the Air Force so that I could learn more about my dad. And so I stuck it out for one quarter and then realized, okay, I'm just going to make it for the year. And then one year turned into four years, which turned into five and a half years in the Air Force. That's crazy. That's such a cool story that your dad piqued your interest in the Air Force and then you ended up joining. That's really cool. Have you faced any struggles um, in the military? I have faced different uh, struggles. So the biggest one, I think, for me, and it's even um, 
current was physical fitness. And so most of the times you think of people in the military think of these extremely fit people. Well, when I joined ROTC, again, I didn't realize there was going to be PT involved. And so I remember showing up at five o'clock in the morning to our first PT session. And they, we had this, a, it was a 200 meter track. So basically 12 laps equaled a mile and a half. And I could not run one lap consecutively. And I was surrounded by a whole bunch of skinny, tall people who were running and doing push-ups and sit-ups. And here I was dying, barely, I don't, I think my mile time was about 17 minutes. So I could probably walk faster than I was running. And I just really struggled during that time. And it was really embarrassing. We'd have those warrior runs with the squadron. So our detachment had over a hundred people. And so we have a hundred people running on the, um, on the own Tangerine trail in Columbus, Ohio. And I, um, I was always the first one to fall out and not finish the run. And so being that person was extremely embarrassing. Um, and everyone kind of ex- expected me to quit. They're like, okay, she's not going to make it. I also, because ROTC standards are different than active duty standards, I had a weight requirement that I needed to meet and I was about 25 pounds overweight. And so because of that, I wasn't allowed to wear the uniform. So I remember all of my peers were in their uniform, whether it was the blues or whether it was the ABUs or BDUs that first year, I had to wear civilian clothes. And so as you can imagine, marching around Ohio State campus, being in civilian clothes, that was really hard for me because people would ask why, you know, Where's Waldo? They could clearly see that I was the one person that did not belong. And so, you know, strangers asked me, well, why aren't you in uniform? And I would try to be sly and say, you know, it's because I don't meet standards right now. And they're like, why don't you meet standards? It's like, well, the Air Force thinks I'm too fat right now and I need to lose a lot of weight. So I'm not allowed to wear the uniform. And that would just always end up in an awkward, like, oh, okay. And I had that conversation so many times. And I didn't really have the resources to teach me how to run, teach me how to lose weight properly. And so I remember going in and getting weighed in and, you know, after weigh-ins on Friday, Friday morning was weigh-ins and afterwards we would go binge on Taco Bell because I had starved myself the week prior. And so it was just like this horrible cycle of losing weight, gaining weight. And it took me over a year to lose the weight. But then, um, all four years, I kind of straddled that line of making weight and not making weight. And so we would have to get weighed in once a quarter for our test. So I basically wouldn't drink any water, eat before a test to make sure that I would make weight. But then I struggled with running a mile and a half or doing push-ups and sit-ups because, hey, I didn't hydrate uh, properly and I didn't give my body the proper fuel. I went through that for the four years in ROTC and I got a little bit better, but then I had a year off where the Air Force was like, hey, we don't need you right now. So just be a civilian for a year. And I went on active duty a year after I graduated. And that PT test was horrible because again, I was working in a civilian job. They don't really give you the time to go work out. And I was not surrounded by um, gyms anywhere near my home. So I didn't work out as much. And I had to struggle that first year and I barely passed. And then um, I remember my first time getting above a 90 on my PT test and it was just glorious. Whereas everyone else, there's less like, oh, I didn't practice for my test and I got a hundred. Right. It just made me want to throw a punch a whole bunch of people. So I'm like, here I am literally working out every single, you know, in ROTC, I had those moments where I would binge and even on active duty where it's like, yeah, I'd enjoy Taco Bell every once in a while. I mean, I was working out six, seven days a week. I have to run every single day. 
If I don't, I know that I'm just, my run is going to slow down. I'm not going to do as many pushups. And so I would give, you know, a hundred percent effort. Okay. Maybe 90% effort. If you count the Taco Bells that I've eaten, but (laughs) even still, you know, people were just excelling and they barely put any effort in. And so that was just extremely frustrating. And so that's kind of followed me now that I had my daughter, I wasn't able to run once I was um, far along in my pregnancy, just because it felt like my bones were literally separating. And so I wasn't able to run as much, but I still remained active, but just to kind of show you like the difference and being from like pre-pregnancy and post-pregnancy. So my PT test before I had my daughter and my PT test that I just took after I had my daughter, the only difference was my waist, which was about four inch difference. And I went from above a 90 to just above an 80. I did wow. I ran just as fast. I did as many push-ups. I did as many sit-ups. The only difference was, hey, my waist is a little larger after I popped out a watermelon and I dropped like seven or eight points. I was like, oh, that is wonderful. That's crazy. Yeah, that waist. I remember when I was in ROTC and the waist measurement was like such a big deal. And I was like really skinny and I still barely met the waist requirement. And if they measured me wrong, then I didn't. And it was like two to five points and it was a big deal on how much it drops you. So I remember that being a struggle as well. And I I just want to applaud you for sticking with it because so many people would have just quit. So that's just amazing that you're doing it. I'm so proud of you. Are there any other struggles that you want to talk about? So outside of the physical fitness aspects, um, I've had challenges working with very toxic leadership. Um, So I've had, there was one experience at my first assignment where, you know, I was a young officer working for a commander who was really good at being a staff officer. So he was great at finishing projects. He was great at meeting the boss's needs and getting tasks done. But as far as leading a squadron of six to 700 people, he was absolutely horrible. And in the force support realm, we're in charge of mortuary affairs. And so in the office that I was in, I had mortuary technicians. And so I had just gotten married. So, you know, I had a very optimistic, I was very happy, very like new to the job. I come into this job and I remember we got our first mortuary case. And so I had a few NCOs working that and When you have a mortuary case, that becomes your primary duty. You're working as long as you need. So if, for example, the the member is killed overseas, well, if you need to talk to their home, if you need to talk to where they're stationed at, you're up in the middle of the night to go talk to them or you're up really early. And so we were working really, really long hours. We were working weekends and we were talking about death. We're talking about military members that we know. Um, we had someone in the squadron that was um, killed. He had some a medical illness, took his PT test, ended up falling out and never got better. And he died a few days later. Um, we had another person who died in a helicopter accident in Afghanistan who I knew about. And so we were going through, we had back-to-back six active duty cases where my mortuary technicians actually worked. And this is going and they're actually um, checking the body to make sure that the body's not leaking, preparing it for the dignified transfer, working with the family to plan the funeral. 
you know, I remember sitting in a living room uh, talking to this airman's mom and his 13 year old brother because he died in a motorcycle accident. And so, you know, we were working these very emotional cases and my commander was, he had no emotions and he would blatantly tell you, I have no emotions. I do not care. And he would draw, and he was also a vegan. And so he never ate at work because there was never any food options. He was just driving us into the grounds because he had no emotions. You know, we would travel long hours to go talk with family members and then we'd come back and he, at, at no point did he ask our members, how are you guys doing? How are you guys handling this? I understand that you just had to inspect this NCO's body and you were really good friends with him. At no point, um, you know, one example of his, I guess, his expectations, I had an NCO who came back from work um, or she deployed. She was gone for six months, single mom, two daughters, and she was on her R&R, two weeks where she's supposed to be getting to know her daughters, getting settled back in. And literally, she wasn't even on R&R a week yet, and we had one active duty case. And so he asked, he told me, he told me, he didn't even ask. He was like, I need you to call her and bring her in. I was like, well, sir, we have other people that are trained to do mortuary cases. He was like, no, I want her. She has the most experience. So I had to call her back in. And she never got that time back with her daughters. There were times where she was working with the commander and I would go pick up her daughters from school so that I could watch them and feed dinner and give them dinner because she was busy, you know, working, um, working with the commander and what they were doing was important, but at no point did he ever take care of them. And so, you know, they had these, the mortuary phone. So every time their phone would ring, you know, they're like jumping, thinking like, oh crap, the commander's calling. What does he need? We got to do this. There were times where he would just berate them where they were just trying to help him like stay on the right side of the law because he would do things that weren't necessarily by guidance because we all know that AFI isn't necessarily law. So it wasn't by guidance and he would just down talk to people. And it was just working for that commander. If I could have separated when I, when I, if I could have separated, I would have separated because of him, because it was just, he made our lives a living hell and you want to be there for these airmen, but there was no opportunity to take care of ourselves. And so my airmen ended up checking, they ended up going to mental health. I had a girl in my office literally in tears and I'm in tears and I'm supposed to be leading these people and I have like no idea what I'm doing. And so I called mental health and I'm like, look, I have someone who's struggling. And that's when I learned that as a leader, we're not allowed to call mental health for people. They have to call um, themselves. And so she was able to go and get seen and work through and process through a lot of her, a lot of the issues that arose from working on the mortuary cases. And so it was just, it was surprising when you have a toxic leader, what ends up happening? We had civilians leaving left and right. And my airmen were checking into mental health and you're driving the officers to want to separate. So that was a definitely a challenging time in my career. Did you learn anything from having, I mean, you learned stuff from good commanders and bad commanders. Is there anything specifically from that situation that you'll use in your future career or you're currently using now? Yes. So from that commander, um, like I said, he never checked in on us and we didn't even get recognized. And I remember um, leaving the squadron and normally they do a going away and he dismissed me and made it very well known that he could care less for my office or for me. And at the time, I didn't think I was getting a decoration and um, there was just all sorts of 
horrible things that happens. But I remember um, the girl that I was telling you about that was crying in my office, she had her husband um, make this wooden box and a handmade wooden box. And it said, whenever you're frustrated or upset, open this box and remember why you serve. And inside the box um, were script- was scripture. It was quotes, motivational quotes. It was pictures of people within the squadron and it was handwritten notes from everybody, from tons of people. And it was just so affirming to hear these people just thank me for leading them and being there for them, especially in a moment where I felt like I was an absolute failure because to me, it was like my people are checking into mental health. I can't even help them. I'm breaking down crying in the office and they're crying. And it was just, it was a big emotional mess. And so, you know, I'm getting teary. I just thinking about it now, but you know, she presented me that gift at my going away. And I realized it had nothing to do with how I necessarily served my commander or how he perceived me, but my job in that role was to take care of my big A airmen. It was to make sure that they were okay. And if I do that, if I continue to take care of them, if I continue to make sure that I kind of take the brunt force of whatever is coming down, then I've done my job. And so I try to be that cushion for um, my future airmen and absorbing any of that because at the end of the day, if I take care of them, I know they'll take care of the mission. And so that's what I've kind of taken forward is knowing that if you take care of your people, they're going to take care of you and no achievement medals or um, no accolades will help you uh, move forward. So that was the biggest takeaway. That's a really cool story. And it's really, it shows how much they cared about you and they appreciated you to give you such a, I mean, that's like a priceless gift. It's not like a little plaque you put on the wall. It's something that you can like keep forever and it'll mean so much to you. So in the intro, you talked a little bit about how you're currently deployed right now. I'm actually on my way out. So I was staying in a bear base. Um, A lot of people joke around that Air Force have the best deployments. And I literally had to take a helicopter to get to my bear base. And I lived in a tent where these massive grasshoppers liked to attack you and walked on a whole bunch of gravel where my, literally my ankles were swollen for the first two or three months. So When I was deployed, I deployed with the Army, and I lived in a tent, and yes, I was in the Air Force, and people were like, Air Force, and it's like, no, that's not always how it is. (laughs) Exactly, and I mean, it's been been a great deployment. Um, I can't complain, but I've stayed in a tent, so I'm like, yes, I've deployed, so no one can ever say anything now. And how long has your deployment been? Uh, It was six months. Um, And when you left, how old was your daughter? Funny story with my like deployment experience. So I've actually been tasked to deploy four times. Um, uh, the first time I was tasked to deploy, I was a first lieutenant and, um, they ended up, I was supposed to be admin stuff and they ended up coming back and saying, Hey, we actually want someone higher ranking. So we took you off that deployment. I'm like, okay. The second time I was supposed to deploy, I moved to England. Um, and this was, there's about two years in between these. I moved to England and I had actually, we had just gone through a miscarriage. So we're getting back. I was trying to get off like the medical code so I could go on this deployment. I was super excited. I was at Maxwell for training for the deployment. And then I found out I was pregnant again. And I was like, okay, I'm not going on this deployment. And so I kind of had to humble myself and tell my commander, hey, sir, I've become that typical person that most people think about um, when they talk about getting out of a deployment. I'm pregnant. I mean, he knew that Typically, the few months after a miscarriage, you're extremely fertile and you are more likely to get pregnant. And that's what happened. Totally unexpected. So I didn't go on that deployment. Then 
my daughter wasn't even a year old. So this was last Christmas. I found out I was tasked to deploy and they wanted me to report before my one year mark, her one year mark, I guess her first birthday. And, um, I was very adamant that I was going to wait until her first birthday because recently uh, the AFIs have allowed us to have one year off from TDYs and deployments. And so as a leader, I needed to set the standard for my airmen underneath me. And I didn't want them to feel like they would have to cut that time short. And so they pushed my deployment a few weeks. So I was going to leave right after her first birthday. And then that deployment got canceled. And (laughs) And before the rule was six months, right? Yeah. So before it was six months, um, you had six months off and you only had six weeks of maternity leave. And now you have 84 days. Well, it's changed, but technically speaking, you get 84 days. So 12 weeks of maternity leave and then a year from not having to take a PT test and a year not having to deploy or go TDY. So I was very adamant I was going to stick to that just because like people have fought to give us that right. And so I wanted to make sure that I kind of upheld that. And so my deployment got canceled. And then a few, like about a month later, it got turned back on. Same deployment. It's just a month longer. And so my daughter turned one at the end of January. And at the beginning of March is when I was um, set to depart. So she was 13, 14 months old-ish. The hardest part of being overseas for that time period? So I must, I will say that like for deployments, I think the hardest part changes on a it depends on the day. For some days, it's the um, the time change, not being able to talk when you want to talk. For other days, it's the not having privacy, where if you need to use the bathroom, someone's going to be in the bathroom. If you want to shower, someone's going to be in the shower. You want to go to sleep, you share that tent with at least five, six other people. And so that was really hard. And then there were days where I would see my daughter on FaceTime and I would see how much she's changed or, you know, she has another tooth or she says another word. And like, my heart would just break a little bit. Cause I'm like, where is the girl I left? That's not the girl I left. This girl's a lot bigger and she's saying a lot more. And so, um, it was moments like that where there was a lot of just everyday selfishness. And then there's a lot of like, Oh, I'm missing out or my friends back home, PCSing. I know that when I get back, they're not going to be there or seeing um, them hang out and do events. And it's like that feeling of missing out. So the hardest part has definitely changed a lot. The hardest part in those these last few weeks is just the anticipation of seeing my daughter and being afraid that she's not going to want to come to me as soon as she sees me because we know that's a possibility, you know, she hasn't seen me in real life for six months. So it could be, she might have stranger danger. So that's the hardest part is the fear of what to expect when I get back home. I liked how you talked about like every day is kind of a different struggle because I could totally relate to that. When I was deployed, like some days, all those things that you mentioned were, except I didn't have kids, but I had a husband that like, sometimes I didn't get to see him or he was off doing things like he PCS while I was deployed and bought a house and I was in Afghanistan. And so I can really relate to not getting your own bathroom or having your own space and all those things. So that was a really good way to um, talk about that. Your husband is active duty with you. What's it like with both of you being in the military? Dual military life. It's fun. So I will say that 
my husband and I, we've been dual military, basically like our entire relationship because we met each other in ROTC. So it's really hard to compare what it would be like if one of us weren't in the military. But there's something unique about being in a, a relationship where you both kind of understand that the other will never be first. So we recognize that the mission will always come first. And so with that means that when we have to stay late for work, it's never good. We're never going to necessarily have that argument of, well, why did you stay late for work? Because we each kind of get it. Um, whereas I think when someone doesn't understand the, the, what the sacrifice of actually serving in the military, they don't understand that sometimes you don't have a choice when it comes to that. I will say, although we're both in the air force, we wear different uniforms and I joke around that we're not really in the same air force. So he's an operator. He flies, you know, he's a fighter pilot. I am what they classify as an honor. That means I work behind, I fly a desk. I work behind a desk and I push paper all day. And so we have different acronyms. We have different standards and expectations. And so it's extremely different um, in our career fields. And so, yes, we both uh, serve our country, but I always joke that it's not in the same, we're not in the same service, two different air forces. I can relate to that because my husband is a developmental engineer and I was a civil engineer and you hear engineers, you think are the same, but I was in like mission support doing like all the field work and maintaining the base. And he was doing like future projects and all this stuff. And I would be like, you know, you're not really in the air force, <laughs> at least not the air force Simon. So I can, I can relate because he has like all the different acronyms and like even their budget's totally different and everything they do is so different than the way that like mission support um, does it. Yes, 100%. Mission support is just a beast in general. And then I will say dual military, it's, it is harder to plan things because if we want to take leave for the holidays, well, now you're not just contending with one schedule, but you're contending with two schedules. And then when someone's in a leadership position or both of us are in leadership positions, now you're contending with all of our subordinate schedules. Like for example, for me, I'm a flight commander. And so that means that my number two and my number three, I need to make sure that if I'm gone, that they're going to be at work. And so that's two other people that we have to contend with. And so that just presents its unique challenges where working as a civilian or even um, working from home, it would be completely different. And then for the military, our roles need to be, we just need to be flexible. So for me, I typically, when I'm home and not deployed, I cook dinner every night, but there's going to be nights where the mission requires me to stay at work really, really late, which means guess what? Like my husband, he's going to have to cook dinner. And so we recognize that and we're really flexible on not just one person does the job. And so I know he's never imagined me actually deploying. And so the fact that I've deployed uh, has been an eye-opening experience for him um, and has kind of shown him what that role is like to be that that stay-at-home parent while the other person is off fighting a war. So I would say another unique thing, I guess, is so when opportunities arise for like um, to go to school or to deploy or to do training, you're kind of conflicted because the spouse in you is like, no, I don't want you to go. I'm going to miss you. Pick family, put family first. But then the the officer, the leader, the military person inside of you is like, wow, that's a great opportunity. You should definitely take it because I would take it if it were my opportunity. And so it's kind of whenever um, we're talking about our next career move, you know, we talk about, well, you know, your wife thinks this, but your peer 
thinks this. And so it's kind of wading through those challenges of that dual military life um, gives us a unique perspective, but it definitely has its unique challenges. That's for sure. I like that part where you said like your wife feels this way, but you're here because it's really it's true because I have especially that I'm not in the military anymore but I still can remember like when I was in the military and like what different opportunities mean. And so I'm always like, yeah, you should do it. But my end here, I'm like, I don't really want you to do it. So, (laughs) but I like that you can express both like, this is how I feel as your spouse, but this is how I feel as like your peer. And so you can have like that both um, that same conversation, but saying like how you feel in both ways. That's really good. What would you tell girls who are considering to join the military? Um, The first thing I would say is the military is a great opportunity. I've definitely learned a lot and it's definitely challenged me. And I think I'm a better wife, a better mother, a better sister, a better daughter because of it too. This is probably one of my biggest like pet peeves of women in the military, but I would tell them not to change themselves to fit the mold, but to embrace their femininity. All too often we see these generals who look like men. They don't wear makeup. They don't wear jewelry. And it's just like, you don't have to be a man to be successful. Now, if that's your thing, if you don't like makeup, more power to you. But I don't think that we should we should just hide all that it means to be a woman for the sake of, well, if I want to succeed, I can't wear pink or I can't carry a purse. And that's not the truth because I, when I see women in power who embrace that, to me, it just, it just shows how strong they are and how confident in their skin they are. That kind of goes to my third thing where you don't need to be a man to succeed. Men and women are very different. And I think you can embrace those differences, whether it's your passion I think women are a little more emotional um, just based off of our hormones. But with that means I tend to be more passionate when it comes to taking care of my airmen. And so I can use that to a benefit. I recognize the limitations, but instead of allowing that to hold me back, I use that to take care of my folks and to highlight myself um, amongst my peers. So I definitely think like you don't need to be a man. You can be a woman. You can be a successful woman in the military. I would just say take advantage of those differences. So whether it's you're being more emotional, um, whether it's you just tend to care more about people, those differences, we can definitely just, we can, we can use that to our advantage and the Air Force needs diversity and they need women. And I would say, don't worry about work-life balance because it doesn't exist. It's a myth. It's kind of like one moment work is going to get, you know, 90%, home is going to get 10%, but then other moments it's going to shift. And so at the end of the day, you can give it a shot. And if it doesn't work out, you're not a failure because you've only served four or five years. That's the biggest thing is that some people feel like if I have to do it, I have to commit and I have to do 20 years. And that's not the case. The Air Force doesn't need people to stay in for 24 years. You know, they need people that are only in for five years or 10 years. And so instead of feeling like you're a failure, it's like, hey, you can still serve your country and you've still done more than most of the United States has. So that's just kind of... I can really relate to that because when I got out, um, I served for six years. And when I got out, I felt like I couldn't wear like a veteran hat, which is weird because like, obviously I'm a veteran, but it's like, oh, but I only served for six years. I didn't serve for 20. And it's like, I don't know why we get in that mindset. And then I would meet males who would wear veterans hats and they'd be like, oh, I was in for two years. Or I I was like, what is my problem? So I can, I can see that. And I like that you talked about like play to your strengths and like, 
I like to be girly and I was in the military and you can do both. I don't wear makeup, but hey, more power to you. That's perfectly fine. <laughs> and then my last question is how did being in the military affect you as a person? I feel like you sort of touched on it, but we'll just wrap it up real quick. Um, yeah, so for me, I will say um, I see current events now, like when I look on the BBC News, and I can actually link that to how it's going to affect my life or my husband's life or my friend's life when it comes to potential wars that could happen, when it comes to countries acting a little crazy, and we're like, oh, goodness, seeing how that actually impacts us, um, it kind of it kind of brings me back to your 9-11 post that you had recently put out there. Like, you know, when you're in the military, when you wear the uniform, you see that impact, every single impact, the the tweet that the president does, the, the ignorant comment that someone from a different country makes. It doesn't matter. You see how it can affect your life. And so it kind of puts you on edge and you're a little more aware of your surroundings. And so in a sense, ignorance is bliss because when you're military, you know a little bit more. You're not allowed to talk about it, but you're just very cognizant of the freedoms and the risks that are associated with that. I've learned that I can survive leaving my child behind. That was the biggest thing. I always thought about, I I always judged, I mean, to be completely honest, I judged women like, why would you want to deploy? How could you leave your child behind? And here, you know, I was a single person thinking like they were horrible mothers. And then I was like, how am I going to survive when I leave leave my daughter behind? And then I'm not going to lie. I've enjoyed the last six months. I haven't had to share a bed. I've been able to use the bathroom in peace. I've been able to read hardback books. If you've ever tried to read a book with a, you know, one-year-old around, they want to touch your pages. I'm very anal about my book like do not rip my pages or else I'm gonna have to buy a brand new book so it's just there has been perks and so I've realized that one like we tend to be very like what's the word like we we think that our children belong to us and we hoard them and it's like no these children do not I guess we are called to raise our kids but I ultimately believe that you know they are alone from God like God has granted us the ability to have these children but we need to raise them to be independent and not dependent on us and so I've learned that it is my job to raise my child if my husband can do it just as well as I can or if somebody else has to it's possible we are called to make sacrifices sometimes but it's for a greater good so I've realized that I can't can survive making those sacrifices. And then um, the last thing, it's being in the military has made me appreciate time with my family and my friends because it's not a guarantee. We lived in England for the last two and a half years. And so it's very hard to see family when it's cost, it costs over $2,000 to go visit them. You know, I've just appreciated the times I get with them. Um, it makes it that much better because you don't worry about the little things. You just kind of focus on, well, I'm not going to get to see you for another six months. So let's just enjoy this. Or same in my marriage where it's like, hey, um, for the longest time, my husband and I were, um, we were long distance. And then he deployed in 2017. I deployed um, this year. And then he's most likely going to deploy next year. So it's like, it makes you appreciate the time you have because you know that, hey, there's going to be a time when they're not there. So I would say those are the biggest ways I've seen that the military has changed me. Thank you so much. I've loved hearing all your answers. And I have a full blog post of a much more in-depth interview that's going to go up on the blog this week. Anything that you want to share about where we can find more about you? 
Back in May, I recently started uh, my blog called A Faithful Step, and you could find me at afaithfulstep.com or the Instagram handle A Faithful Step, same with Facebook. And really, it's about taking that faithful step um, and being strong and courageous and listening to the calling that ha- that God has on your life. And so for me, I felt like, although I didn't necessarily have a choice with this appointment, I could either go on this appointment and be optimistic and and accept the call that God had on my life, or I could be very pessimistic and just kind of talk about how horrible of experience it would be and just think of all the negative things. And instead of doing that, I just went on a faithful step, not knowing what was going to happen, not knowing what my actual job was going to be. And I just found a passion in writing. And our biggest goal is to empower and equip women for a life well lived. And so mainly just through our everyday life, I have this joke called E-cubed, emotions estrogen and Eve as women. Um, We have emotions and they make us a little crazy. Uh, Same with estrogen. I can blame it all on the estrogen. And then Eve, she ate the apple and that started it all. And so we are all sinners. And so that combination, my E-cubedness, my craziness in life, but through all of that, I hope that I can empower women and encourage them that, hey, you can survive and you can continue living being the best mom, the best wife, the best friend um, to the people around you. So I liked how you talked about how the Air Force sent you because we just recently PCS. And even though I feel I feel like God put us here and I feel like I mean, obviously the Air Force put us here, but I still feel like God's hand was in it. And so I liked how you talked about. So I'll link to all your social media handles and your blog in the show notes. And I'm just so glad I got to talk to you. And I can't wait for when this episode goes live. Oh, for sure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women of the Military. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing stories I have with women who have served in our military. Did you love the show? Don't forget to leave a review. Finally, if you are a woman who has served or is currently serving in the military, please email me at airmantomom at gmail.com so I can set you up to be on a future episode of Women of the Military.